Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bradley, and welcome back into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are going to be diving deep into the hit Netflix series Bridgerton and discussing the first episode, the inaugural, the premiere episode of season one, entitled Diamond of the First Water. Before we dive deep into this episode, though, I do want to remind everyone that Let's Dive Deep does contain adult content. For instance, three scenes or so into this episode, there are two people that are doing some uh, adult gymnastics up against a tree, if you will, and there's a third person there who's kind of begrudgingly watching the whole thing, so if you do not want to discuss that scene further, or you're in a car full of kids when you're listening to this podcast, I would recommend now is a good time to turn it off before we talk about it, because it's definitely adult content-y. I would also like to let everyone know that the whole Bridgerton podcast, as we do this, will be spoiler-free up until the episode that we have watched. So in this episode, we will only be talking about what happens in episode one. When we do episode two, we'll talk about the first two episodes, but I will never be spoiling ahead of where we've watched to. I am also doing this podcast one episode at a time as I watch Bridgerton, so I will not be able to spoil anything which is great, makes it a lot easier. But just so you guys know, some of you might be coming in after watching the first episode, some of you might be coming in after you've binged the whole thing. So just so you know where we're at with spoilers, I do not know what's going to happen after this episode. That should be really fun for you guys who have watched the whole thing to hear me kind of guess and predict where things are going and what may or may not happen. That way you can be like, oh, fuck, this guy's an idiot. Or like, oh my god, this guy's incredible. So we will see how that goes. But that's the adult content warning and the spoilers. So... It has adult content. There are no spoilers. Let's dive deep into the first episode of season one of Bridgerton. As mentioned earlier, episode one is entitled Diamond of the First Water, which is a beautiful name for this episode. I always like to evaluate episode titles for no reason. What I'm looking for in a good episode title is it's relevant to the story, but doesn't spoil anything. And I really think Diamond of the First Water is great. I also got the sense that that was a term that no one knew. That was very weird to me when, um, I think it was Lady Bridgerton when she was reading the Whistledown pamphlet was like, oh, she called Daphne a diamond of the first water, but didn't that didn't seem to be like a common phrase. So anyways, I thought that was interesting. This was written by Chris Van Dusen, who is the showrunner of Bridgerton. I didn't do a whole lot of Googling on some of the behind-the-scenes people because I didn't want to get spoiled accidentally, but I think this is Chris Van Dusen's first showrunning job. So good work, Chris. You picked a, <laughs> a very interesting show to jump in on. After one episode, Bridgerton may or may not be the best or worst show I've ever watched. I have no idea. And this was directed by Julie Ann Robinson. And the only reason I mention that is I think it's cool to give credit to the people we are never going to talk about again. But also I think she did a good job with this episode. So written by Chris Van Dusen and directed by Julie Ann Robinson. In terms of giving this episode a grade... You know, as we dive deep into Bridgerton, we're going to have to score each episode so we can compare and contrast which episodes stuck out to us, which plot points were really cool. How do we evaluate this uh, within itself, but also based on all the other TV shows out there? There's a lot of TV to watch, and so the scale has to reflect that. The way I've decided to score Bridgerton, we're just going to go over it this one time, that way in the next seven episodes we don't need to talk about how the system works again, is I've decided to do it out of 10. So we're going to give each episode a rating out of 10, and the way I've designed it is that I've benchmarked 7 as kind of the point you want to hit. Right, We have to find a way to judge Bridgerton and every show that we talk about on this podcast 
as its own show. Bridgerton is trying to do something different from Game of Thrones, which is trying to do something different from Stranger Things. On, on and on and on and on. All these shows are trying to do and be something different and appeal to a different audience. So it's not really fair to score them compared to each other. But at the same time, if I rate an episode an 8, it's got to match the 8s that we give episodes in other shows. So I've benchmarked 7 is where you want to hit. If you hit a 7 and your episode is rated a 7, for me that means I sat down, I thoroughly enjoyed it, it was a good episode of TV, any of the complaints or nitpicks I have are fairly minor, but overall I sat down and I really enjoyed the episode of TV. As you go from 7 closer to 10, right, it gets harder and harder to go to the next step. So going from 7 to 7.1 is easier than going from 8 to 8.1, which is easier than going from 9 to 9.1. And the reason we're going to do it that way is that you need to leave room at the top for some of the truly great episodes of TV. So ideally for us, as you watch a, a season of TV, most episodes of most TV shows will land somewhere between 7 and 8. And there is a big difference between 7.1 and 7.9, but most episodes will end up in that range of 7 to 8. Every season of TV should have a couple 8 episodes. You know, those might be your big plot twists, your big finales. Some of your bigger episodes might end up in between 8 and 9. And then some of the over-the-top, just truly incredible television episodes will be up in the 9s. So some seasons of TV might never have a 9, right? That 9 to 10 is reserved for the absolutely incredible, jaw-dropping episodes of TV. The ones that create those water-cooler moments that you just can't stop talking about. So that's kind of the scale we're going to go with. We might tweak it as we go along. We want to make sure it works for us. But according to that scale and how I feel about this episode, I'm going to give the first episode of Bridgerton, Diamond of the First Water, a 7.3. With this episode being the first episode, the premiere episode of a new show, it has a lot of or a bulk of the exposition to do. Same with like the first couple chapters of a book. Right, This episode needs to introduce us to all the characters, to the setting, to the place, to the time, to the plot, to the protagonist, to the antagonist. It needs to introduce the conflict. There's a lot of things the show just needs to tell us, which can be quite boring at times. And so a premiere episode or the first couple chapters of a book always struggle with how do we give the viewer, us, all the information they need to watch the show but in an interesting and fun way so that it doesn't feel boring or drawn out or anything. Um, in the first season of Game of Thrones, I remember when I was listening to podcasts on that show, everyone would call it sex position. Game of Thrones decided they were going to use sex as a way to give the exposition. This show does it via just the variety of balls we go to in this episode. And so there's different ways to make it fun and exciting. And I think this episode did that well. We got enough information or all the information that we really need to move on to episode two. We got introduced to the conflict, to all the main characters, but at the same time, it wasn't overly boring. It wasn't drawn out. I wasn't bored by this episode. At no point when I was like, oh, can you just shut up and get on to the next fun thing? I thoroughly enjoyed the whole episode, and I think 7.3 reflects kind of the the difficult job this episode has to do, but the fun and exciting way of which they went about it. So 7.3 out of 10 for the first episode. And I also think that'll be lower than average. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to the end of these eight podcasts and 7.3 is lower than average. I think as we're introduced to everyone and as the story gets going, there's less exposition that needs to be happening. And so the, the other episodes will rate higher because of that. But we'll see. I suppose we'll find out. But 7.3 is where we are at for me.
Before we dive deep into the plot of this episode and kind of dissect it uh, like a surgeon might, I do want to talk a little bit about what worked for me and what didn't work for me in kind of the broad strokes of this episode. You know, I really enjoyed the premise of this show. So a lot of the plot is fairly typical and tropey in terms of romantic fiction, right? You have this damsel in distress character, for instance, and that's Daphne, and she's beautiful, and the queen loves her, and she's the diamond of the first water, you might say. But oh no, something terrible is happening. She's going to end up with Lord Burbrook? What the fuck? That doesn't make sense, right? But then, oh, who's going to come and save her? Oh my god, it's the sexy duke on the horse with the flask and so that plot line is a little bit tropey and then you have all these other characters that can be a bit tropey for this type of show as well you have anthony the eldest brother the man of the house definitely in heavy quotation marks anthony sucks and he's not interested he wants to go and flee with his opera singer girlfriend and there's a lot of tropey aspects to it but but there's a reason these things are trophy, or tro- trophy, trophy, and that's because people like watching them. And I'm a little bit of a sucker for a period piece. I'm a little bit of a sucker for a show like this where it's not trying to blow me away. Come on, phone. Come on. Go on silent. What are you doing? I apologize for that. How rude of me. Where are my manners? Um, right. The show's not trying to blow you away with like a super innovative plot that's never been done before, but they do a few things that really take this kind of common theme that's in romantic fiction and really flesh it out a little bit. And the first is the hyper-focus on the social season. This is something I didn't really know existed and I'm intrigued and terrified by the idea that there's an actual season like it's like it's like spring social season fall winter where the the women of the time the people who are coming of age who are ready to have kids are going to go out into the world they do they use the term on the market in this episode i can't remember but like i remember in my notes i put on the market and then i deleted it because it was like i just felt weird referring to people as like like they're being sold off in an auction but That's kind of what the social season is. You know, Penelope's talking about sitting this season out. And so there's a season and it starts with the Danbury ball and these people are going to go and you have all these daughter characters, all these female characters who need to find husbands who are from a good family, who can provide, who want lots of kids. And there's a whole thing that the, the women are trying to achieve. Some of them want to achieve it like Daphne and some of them have no fucking interest like Penelope and Eloise. Right, but that's kind of the premise. And then you have all the males, and you have on the same, on the, it's like the exact flip, they're trying to find women who um, come from good families, who can have lots of kids, who have big dowries so they can give a little bit of money. And they're, they're trying to use this social season to work their families up this ladder, and it's really, really interesting that they hyper-focus on it because it's not something I really knew existed, and that really, really worked for me, and I had a lot of fun just laughing because we all know the social season is ridiculous. It's completely insane, right? But I had a lot of fun kind of exploring that, and I think that's what this episode was trying to do, and it really, really worked for me. The next thing that really worked for me, and this is the biggest one that makes this show very unique, is the addition of Lady Whistledown. What a delight. You know, Julie Andrews comes in with the voice, and it's incredible. And the idea 
The idea that someone who's just come on the scene, you know, Lady Whistledown, you can tell by the context of this episode, is not someone who's been around for a while. The Bridgertons are like, whoa, did we know a Lady Whistledown? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then the Queen is super in on Lady Whistledown. And the way that this anonymous author who's just arrived on the scene with her first pamphlet that she gives free of charge, I like that touch as well, that she's not even charging for it. She is so in on the gossip, she doesn't even want to get paid for it. And that she can just paralyze everyone a lot of what makes the characters work in the social season is a lot of gossip and hearsay right it doesn't matter if you're actually a good person it matters that people talk about you as if you're a good person that the queen tells you you're a good person that lady whistledown writes that you're a good person right word of mouth really matters the truth doesn't necessarily matter as much and i really liked how you have all these powerful rich families and they're just brought down straight to their knees by lady whistledown and what she says appears to be law and it doesn't even really make sense because all of these powerful families and the queen the queen the queen of england can just ignore her like why is anyone listening to her but they can't help it they're gossips they fucking love this they love tattletailing on their neighbors they love trying to use gossip and hearsay to improve their position in society and have no problem weaponizing it when it'll help them and, and take away a competitor like i love that lady whistledown is just in here causing a ruckus stirring the shit a little bit or stirring the pot throwing shit against the wall. I don't know. I just got my metaphors confused there, but you get the idea. Lady Whistledown is doing all of those things, and it really adds a nice bit of overarching conflict to this show, because you just know you're watching it at any time. Any time, no matter what anyone does, Lady Whistledown can just say whatever she wants about them, and it'll either take you from the top of the, or the bottom of the ladder to the top, or the top of the ladder to the bottom, and nothing matters. And I really, really enjoy that little touch. Additionally, the soundtrack for this episode was incredible. I recognized a few modern songs, and this ties in with something else that really worked for me too. The show never takes itself too seriously. It knows it's ridiculous. It knows it's funny. They don't go overboard with it. They don't go to the point where it's like a parody, but it's almost, it's about as close to a parody as you can get. You get the sense that the people who make this show know the whole situation is ridiculous. Know that me as a viewer in 2020, I'm going to find the whole social season uh, like just completely insane. And I really enjoyed that the soundtrack reflects that. You know, you have an Ariana Grande song. I'm excited to see if they do this more often, right? Where they take a modern song and put it in there, but they know they're making this show for a 2020 audience. And when Thank You Next came on at the beginning of the first ball, I was just, I thought that was so cool. You, they take the modern song, they play it on instruments to make it sound like it's from the Regency era where the show is set. And I think it's a wonderful touch to kind of emphasize that this show is not taking itself too seriously. It knows it's making the show for a 2020 audience, so you don't have to take it too seriously. It kind of, for me, it gave me permission to really just enjoy it. I relaxed. I, I watch TV. Obviously, I'm doing a podcast like this. When I watch TV, I get super into it. I want to talk about the characters, the setting, the lighting, the costumes, the theme. And it's hard for me to watch TV shows without getting too emotionally invested into it. And so I try not to watch too many of them, if I'm being honest. But... Once that Ariana Grande song came on, it just gave me permission to relax. It's like, it's okay. You don't need to think about it too much. Just sit back and enjoy it. And I thoroughly did. And the soundtrack really helped me get there. The other extracurriculars, things that really add to the show, that bring out the world, 
that that put you into it, that really make the show believable, um, that I also thought were great. The lighting, the costumes, all amazing. Everything looked great. Everything was fun. Everything was bright. Everything was lively. I really felt that this world came alive as I was watching it on screen, and I really enjoyed that. And then the last thing that really worked for me is the variety of characters, right? I have a, a character nitpick we're going to talk about in what didn't work for me. But you have all these characters, and they're all experiencing similar situations. You have the group of moms, right? And they're all gossiping, and they're all trying to get their daughters wed, and they're all trying to convince their oldest sons that they need to get married as well. Like, they're all doing similar things, but they have their own unique personalities. You know, Lady Bridgerton, it was clear, married for love. Lady Featherington, it is clear, is not kind of in that same kind of loving relationship. Lady Bridgerton has no trouble getting her daughters out onto the market. I really hate that term. But it's kind of what this is, right? Out into the social scene, whereas Lady Featherington is having all kinds of trouble just fitting her daughters into the corsets. And so you have characters that are doing the similar thing, but they're different personality-wise. They're foils of each other. And I really liked that throughout the episode, people are in similar situations, but they're foiling each other. You know, you have the Duke and Anthony, very similar situations. I end up, I end up, the, I end up, uh, at the end of this episode, feeling very differently about the two characters, um, Daphne and, or Penelope and Eloise, right? Those two characters, you know, Eloise is still a year away from going into the social season. Penelope is there this year, but they're both characters who don't want anything to do with this, right? They're not very into it. Penelope's at, Penelope would rather just read somewhere, which you know what I can relate with. Just go read a book, Penelope. You are killing it, right? And Eloise um, wants to talk about Lady Whistledown nonstop, which is a bit suspicious. We're going to talk about at the end of this episode where my Lady Whistledown kind of power rankings are at, um, but that seems very suspicious. So generally, the variety of characters uh, in this show was incredible, even though they're all performing very similar functions. So I thought they did a really good job fleshing that out. Now, obviously, I've given this show a 7.3 out of 10. So a lot more worked for me than didn't work for me. But there were some things that didn't really quite hit the nail on the head that I ended the episode feeling like, oh, I wish they had done that a little bit better. The first thing is Burbrook. In a show, you need to have conflict. You need to have protagonists and you need to have antagonists. And in this show, you have Daphne. And she's kind of the center of the show, at least in this episode. You know, that might change as we watch farther. But Daphne is the center of the show. And she's beautiful and the queen likes her. And then later, the queen sasses her out. But we'll get to that, right? And so she is all set to, to really marry just the best husband. Right, and then Lord Burbrook arrives on the scene, and he's kind of like the villain character. You know, he's creepy and weird, and Daphne wants nothing to do with him. And because of all the other things going on that we'll talk about, he's the only one calling on her, right? And then, oh, the Duke shows up, and he's big, and he's big. He's like, he's handsome and sexy, and he rides a horse, and he's drinking out of a flask. And the problem is, I watched this whole thing, and I was like, oh, she's just going to hook up with the Duke. Like, that's just going to happen. Right, like her and the Duke are getting together at some point, and Burbrook is just out of my mind. And what needs to happen for me to feel real conflict in the show is the Duke and Burbrook, or at least Burbrook needs to present a real threat. Because the Duke is a Duke and is a better person, he has everything over Burbrook. So there's no reason to ever end up with Burbrook unless Anthony fucks it up. We'll talk about that as well. Right? 
What I need is I need Burbrook to like also be a duke. There needs to be a threat there. You have two dukes and maybe um, the Duke of Hastings, the duke we like, he is the best personality for Daphne, right? He's going to make the best husband. He's going to care about Daphne and be a genuinely nice guy. But maybe Burbrook has all the other things you want in a husband in this era. He has more money. He has a bigger estate. His fam- He actually wants children, whereas uh, the Duke of Hastings doesn't. If you had made the Burbrook character a little more meaty, uh, have a higher station in society, I'm not really sure how, how they would go about it, but he needs to be more of a threat. Because as I was watching this, the second the Duke arrived, I was like, oh, they're hooking up later. Like, they are getting together at some point. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know why. But it's not long before we just don't care about Burbrook anymore. And that kind of ruined that plot line for me. There's still seven episodes left. I'd be shocked if Burbrook was in all seven of them. He's just so much less of a threat compared to how great the Duke is and how much of the criteria he meets that I can't imagine that that's a plot line that ends or extends to the end of the season. And because I was able to so obviously pick that out, it kind of fell flat for me. So maybe Burbrook will get flushed out more. Maybe we'll see him again. You know, he got smoked in the face at the end of this episode. I don't know if he comes back. There's a really good chance he's like, yo, I'm done with this Bridgerton family. I'm not going to tell anyone I got punched in the face by a girl because that's embarrassing. And I'm just going to leave it alone. So we'll see if he comes back. But I didn't really feel like he was an adequate threat compared to how much of a threat they were trying to make him. I needed to believe that Daphne had a real chance of marrying him. And I just didn't the other thing that didn't really work too well for me and this is a take in development so this is something that might change for me later on as i watch more episodes but there's two ways to approach introducing me the viewer to all the characters the approach that they took was to literally introduce us to everybody i would be shocked if we were introduced to more characters as the uh show went on maybe Maybe we are introduced to the reason why the Duke doesn't like his father, right? But we met everybody in this episode. The downside to that approach, though, is I only get to know two things about everyone. You know, Daphne, she's beautiful, she's desirable, and she wants to marry for love and have kids. And that's all you know about Daphne, right? You don't go any deeper. It's fairly shallow. And the Duke... He hates his father, he doesn't want to marry, he doesn't want to have kids, moms annoy him, and that's what you know about the Duke. Anthony wants to shag his singer, opera singer girlfriend, and wants nothing to do with being the man of the house, or just isn't very good at it, or whatever the case is. We'll talk about Anthony in a minute, but that's all you know about him. And Mama Bridgerton, she married for love, she has eight kids, and she... She does seem to care deeply about them, and that's all you know about her. And so what it opens up, the opportunity, is that as we move on to further episodes, we don't need to be introduced to any more characters, so all of the deep diving into the characters just happens then. And if that's the case, then that's perfect. If we end up being introduced to too many more characters, though, I'll get a bit tired of all the exposition that happened in this episode, because what I would have rathered happen, and it just depends on what they do for the rest of the show, so again, take in development, but it would have been nice if we took Daphne, the Duke, Anthony, and Burbrook, and we just really fleshed them out a little bit. Learned, like, eight things about them instead of two things about them, right? So we'll see if these characters get fleshed out more. But I did get to the end of the episode just not really being emotionally invested 
into any one particular plot line, right? Like, obviously, I don't want Daphne to end up with Burbrook, but I wasn't at the end of the episode, like, spam clicking the next one, being like, oh, shit, does she end up with Burbrook? Fuck, 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 fuck. No, 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 no. Like, that's not how I felt at the end of the episode. I was just like, eh, I hope she doesn't end up with Burbrook. But I don't really like Daphne enough. I don't know enough about her to to care that much. And so that's 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 the second thing that didn't really work too much for me this episode. But now what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the plot. I will take some time on some of the more important parts and less time on some of the less important parts. We're going to go kind of scene by scene and talk about how this episode went and some of the ups and downs because this episode was an absolute joy. It was a journey. There are so many cool things we got to see. So let's dive deep into the plot of the first episode of Bridgerton. The episode kicks off by introducing us to the Featheringtons and the Bridgertons, and they do that um, via foil. I know I talked about foils earlier in the what worked for me section of this episode, but you kind of get it. It's a theme throughout the episode, right? You have the Bridgertons, and they're getting ready, and it's Daphne's big day, and Eloise, this is a very funny moment where she's screaming up the stairs, and the way she screams like, you must make haste, is so good, and it really helps you dive into the show, just using language that you obviously would never hear now. But the Bridgertons are clearly a loving caring family you know anthony's gonna be late and eloise doesn't want anything to do with it but mostly they're having a good time and they know things are gonna go well for daphne whereas the featheringtons and this scene plays for high comedy right i think you're meant to laugh at this scene and it's a very funny scene right they're trying to squeeze all their daughters into their corsets and it appears that the older daughters are going into their second social season like it didn't really work out for them the first time penelope's going into her first social season and is trying to sit it out she would rather read books and so you you kind of get the foil there of the featheringtons and the bridgertons they're two powerful families they both have lots of money they both have daughters that are going out onto the market but you can just tell from scene one that it's going to go very differently for both of these families. And one of the things I noticed, again, another take in development here, I'm going to point things out as I see them so I can try and predict where the story might be going because I think that's part of the fun of doing a podcast like this, is Penelope and Eloise have, like, there's a bunch of cuts in this episode, like, little waves between them. So I, my guess is that they are friends. I'm not sure how much this will get fleshed out in future episodes but it does seem like penelope and eloise have formed like their little friendship around yeah we don't want anything we hate the market we hate husbands we hate all of it and i'm sure their characters will be slightly different moving forward but they have their own little friendship going on and one of the things i really liked about that was i enjoy that in terms of being on the market it's a competition but otherwise these people are friends later in the episode they mention we'll talk about the queen meeting the queen in a second here but they mention that you only see the Featheringtons and the Bridgertons go and meet the Queen. But they mention that hundreds, maybe they use the word thousands, I can't remember, right? But there's loads of people in this world that were just off screen. And you'd kind of get that when you go to the balls and there's hundreds of people there. And so I do like how on the market things are a little bit competitive, trying to find the best husbands and wives and all that. But outside of that, these people can be friends and the families don't outright hate each other. I would have felt like that was a little bit tropey. And I do like that Penelope and Eloise are able to have this friendship that no one else in the families really cares about too much. So that was really, really cool. We are then introduced to Anthony, and Anthony gets his big introduction. I put, he must be the oldest brother. Later, we learn from Lady Whistledown that all of the Bridgertons are named in order, which is fantastic. That's hilarious. 
I don't really know why. Miss Bridgerton says it's orderly. I think if you have so many, like how many kids are you going to have that you forget their names unless they're named in order? I just thought that was a really cool touch and I found that to be really funny. Um, but later we can kind of figure it out that Anthony, because his uh, first name starts with the letter A, is the oldest. And he is, he is engaged in a vigorous <laughs> amount of sexual activity with someone who we later learned to be the opera singer. At this point, we don't really know who she is. All we know is he's checking his watch. He's going to be late. And he, I don't, I've, okay, I'll be perfectly honest. I've never had sex up against a tree before. Just not a situation I've ended up in in my lifetime. But it doesn't look good for the back. It looks very uncomfortable. But I think this is the one time, I'm a person who's very glad that in history, I would have never had to wear a corset. They look very uncomfortable, as mentioned by the first scene. And in modern day times, I don't have to wear a corset. So I'm just generally happy that corsets are not uh, a thing that I would have ever had to wear or have to wear now. But if your back is going up and down against the bark of a tree that quickly, the only thing separating you from, like, scarring on your back is the corset. I just thought that whole thing looked uncomfortable. Anthony, you're in a carriage, mate. Just go, just go to the, ca oh, okay, whatever. I don't want to talk about this scene anymore other than it's our first introduction to Anthony. He's going to be late for his sister's big day. Uh, Anthony sucks. I don't like Anthony. We're going to talk about all the reasons I don't like Anthony as we go through this episode, but I'm glad he's doing what he wants. He's the man of the house. He has all this money. I just don't know if a tree was the best place. I would have gone back to the fucking carriage that they were with. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I also felt really bad for this um, this guard guy. You know, he's obviously the one that's driving the carriage. He is the one who's kind of with Anthony to make sure he gets to this thing on time. And he just has to... You get the sense that this is not the first time that he's done this. That this tree is a spot they frequent often. And I thought that was really funny. Just how disappointed and upset. He really had the I don't get paid enough for this look on his face. And I thought that was really great. The next situation we find ourselves in is the scene with the queen meeting all the women of the season. Uh, Mama Bridgerton is very pissed at Anthony for being late, which is something that gets flushed out a little later in the episode. Anthony uh, is late, but says, of course I wouldn't miss your big day. So, you know, at least he's there. Let's give him credit. At least Anthony shows up. I, watching this scene, had a lot of thoughts. First off, imagine you are a woman who... Your whole life, you're prepped for this moment. Your whole life, you know, at some point, you're going out into the social season. You're going to have to find a husband, whether you want to or not. And that's just part of how the world works. So you're going to have to do it. And so you get prepped. I don't know how old these girls are. I want to say they're meant to be somewhere between 16 and 20, right? It's hard to gauge how old the characters are meant to be and how old the actors that are portraying them are and how close or how big of a discrepancy there is. Right, but I got the sense they're meant to be like late teens, right? Uh, yeah, late teens, like 16 to 20 is, is my guess, right? So you prepared for well over a decade and a half for this moment, and the queen doesn't even say anything. She just looks at you, and your whole value, your whole life can change just based on whether the queen looks at you a certain way or makes a certain hand gesture, or I just thought it's... it's how stressful is that? How many times have you 
prepared a decade and a half for something that's only going to last 30 seconds where you have very little control about the outcome. Like the amount of stress and pressure that these characters must feel is intense. And thinking about it, these are people who have prepped their whole life for this. For some of them, this is not something they want. And to just have it all be based on whether the queen looks at you a certain way is incredible. And so I think that the Featheringtons need to have a better strategy here. It Again, the Featheringtons are played as the comedic relief. Like the three girls walking in at the same time, like go one at a time. What are you doing? Why are all three of you going through a doorway that's not big enough for the three of you and they're shuffling beside each other? This is just poor game planning from the Featheringtons here. So the Featheringtons go and one of them faints in front of the queen again. These people are meant to be the comedic relief. And I feel really bad, right? I feel really bad for the Featheringtons because on the whole, they seem like very nice and lovely ladies. And I don't understand why uh, every scene they're in has to be they're the comedic relief. But hey, they mess it up and it's very, very, very funny. And then Daphne goes, oh, there's an ambulance in the background. Ooh, ooh. Lord Burbrook's heart is getting transported via ambulance right now. Anyways, um, Daphne goes in. Daphne goes in and just knocks the sock so- knocks the socks off of the place. Everyone thinks she's amazing. You get the sense that it's very rare for the queen to like stand up and actually go and walk up to somebody and kiss them on the forehead. Like that's a rare gesture. So Lady Whistledown and everyone else is like, "Oh shit, Daphne is on the scene. She is here. She is the incomparable of the season. She's going to go out and she can snag whoever she wants." This is shown later when everybody is getting their whistle down kind of reviews. And this is where Whistledown calls her the diamond of the first water. So Daphne goes in, absolutely kills it. Whistledown is into it. The queen's into it. Everyone's into it. And the Featheringtons fucking sucked at it. And that's unfortunate for them, but that's how the scene played out. It really does help with this foil, though, that the, the Bridgertons and the Featheringtons are similar in a lot of ways, but this whole thing is going to be very, very different for both families. We get a little bit of a recap of this situation where Daphne is like saying it like it is. I appreciated Daphne in this moment where she's like, look, if I get the correct match here, if I go out, the queen's complimenting me, I'm being the diamond of the first water, the incomparable, it helps all of you. You have Eloise here who just doesn't really care. The younger sister, I don't think we get her name, seems to be really into it as well. That's the vibe I got from them. But Daphne seems to have a good head on her shoulders with regards to how her situation impacts all of her family. So it's one of those rare moments, and I really like when this happens in life, where the thing that you want most also benefits other people. Like, Daphne wants to marry for love and wants a good husband and those types of things, and she's in the position to get it, but getting what she wants also helps her family. So she's in a great spot right now where she just gets to be like, oh, man, me getting a good husband? Oh, my God, this sucks so much, but it's good for you. Like, oh, you can't believe the effort I have to go through right now. And so... In front of the, her family, she's kind of saying it like it is. Later, when she talks to Anthony, she has a little bit of a different view on it, mostly because Anthony's being a dink face. But in this scene here, Daphne is kind of giving the lowdown to the rest of her family. Like, look, Eloise, stop complaining. If I do better in this situation, things will be easier and better for you, which I at least appreciated from Daphne. They want different things, but she's kind of laying it down like it is and giving a good base of knowledge for us to understand how this show works 
Later, in the Featherington household, Marina arrives. Marina is a character that is meant to be like as if the th- as if things weren't going bad enough for the Featherington girls. Like Marina arrives and is just like, "Oh god. Oh no, another beautiful young woman under our roof like this sucks." And this is where some of the editing and the camera work and the acting really stood out. They are um they are talking about the callers, and there's this whole situation in the Featherington house about what's going to happen. And then Marina shows up, and Penelope says it, and I thought it was a bit on the nose. Penelope goes, oh, she's beautiful. And that piece of information's there, so you know, like, oh, everyone in this world is going to think she's amazing and beautiful, and she's going to have an easy time of this. What I really liked was the acting of the older Featherington girls in this scene, where you can just tell by their face, they're like, oh, no. This is my second season I'm already struggling with this. Like, do we really need Marina to come on the scene? We also learn that she has a four-figure dowry. So it's not a big dowry. I'm assuming everyone else's is five or six figures then, obviously. And it's called like a mere, a mere four-figure dowry. So I I think it'll be interesting to see how Marina overcomes this. What is What is more important to these men? Is it the beautiful Marina or is it her dowry? What... Um, what is going to be the factor as she goes into the social season? Because that's what Marina is here to do. What is going to be the big factor? Because I think mentioning a dowry wouldn't happen unless it was going to come in to play sometime later. And so it'll be interesting to see if she's doing really well until guys figure out about her dowry. I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I think it's really interesting. And what I liked about this scene was that Marina comes in and you can just see it on the face of the Featherington girls how not upset but just how like frustrated they are with this situation the next person we meet meek meek meet is the duke so i put in my notes as like verbatim (laughs) the duke is sexy as fuck drinking out of a flask coming in hot very cliche the duke comes in and he's hot and he's on a horse and he's drinking from his flask and he meets up with Lady Danbury and this this whole scene is very, very, very funny and I really appreciate it uh, as, a, as an introduction to this character, right? And you're kind of being introduced to Lady Danbury as well. So we learn that his father has just died and it seems like you get the sense that he really didn't like his father. So I'm not sure if that's going to get fleshed out more, but that's what we know about the duke so far. His father just died, so he has risen to his dukedom. He's here. You you get the sense that he knows Lady Danbury. I'm not sure what kind of relationship they have. I think it's pretty clear that she's not his mother, but I don't have it in my notes that we know that for sure. So at this point, I think I'm just guessing that he is, or she is, Lady Danbury is not his mother, but they clearly know each other. And one of the best parts about this is that the Duke wants nothing to do. He doesn't want to get married. He doesn't want to have kids. He doesn't want to meet all the moms. He doesn't want to do any of it. And so he he he's trying to get out of going to the opening ball of the season. And uh, <laughs> he says something like, I give you my regrets. I cannot make it tonight. And then Lady Danbury just goes, your regrets are denied. And he's like, ah, fuck. I guess I got to go. So Lady Danbury clearly has influence over him because it was very, very funny how little effort it took her to convince him to go to the ball. So that was fantastic. We get a little bit more information now about 
the woman that Anthony was having sex against the tree with. It is a woman who is an opera singer. This is very, very cool. I do enjoy that this person that Anthony seems to have this side relationship with has a little bit of depth. She's talented. She seems very kind. She's not like just some like hussy on the side. Like I appreciate that in this world that she's a real character that has emotions that is fleshed out a little bit. Like we know as much about her as we do about the other main characters. And I really, really like that. Anthony though is just, he just doesn't want to be the man of the house. I don't think he seems a little bit resentful that he has to leave this situation. Also this, this is much more comfortable. You know, the bed, the cuddling, that's a much more (laughs) nice situation to be in. I'm glad that he's upgraded from the tree to this kind of couch bed thing, but he needs to leave to chaperone his sister, which introduces the idea of a chaperone, which Daphne will bring up later in the episode. I think this is hilarious because I've never in my life needed chaperones for things like your, your parents just drop you off at the movies or whatever, but there's the word chaperone doesn't really come up, but he's going to go and guard Daphne from the bucks and the pinks. I do not know what a buck or a pink is, but that is very funny that he needs to go. I'm assuming men of dishonor, men who have debts. I don't know. And he needs to ensure her virtue is free of defilement. At this point, I'm like, how do you defile someone's virtue at a ball? Even if Anthony's not there to chaperone, how do you defile someone's virtue at a ball with hundreds of people? I guess it might be the garden thing. I guess you must just go out into the garden and like, I have no idea. Anyways, I thought, I thought this whole scene was very funny. I thought the Bucks and the Pinks comment was was very good. And Anthony's purpose at this ball that we're going to see is to go and ensure his sister Daphne's virtue is free of defilement. I put in my notes how many episodes until he can't protect her anymore because Anthony goes on this rant. Uh, not even really a rant, a very beautiful, eloquent conversation about how he's always going to protect this um, opera singer that he is sleeping with on the side. And I put, I'll give it till mid, I'll give it till mid season. Anthony sucks. Turns out it's this episode. Anthony doesn't even make it to the end of this episode without being a dink to this girl too. So I'm just out on Anthony. Next up, we have our first ball of the episode. This is the Dan Burry ball. There are a lot of things happening at this ball, so I'm going I'm to brush over some of them. Just know that I won't be able to hit every main beat. But first off, the ball itself is beautiful. It's stunning. It's very fun to be in. This is where you're first introduced to all the other hundreds of people that were talked about. They mentioned that, or Daphne mentioned earlier, that out of all the people to go see the Queen that she was the only one who got a most gracious remark. So this is where you get to see there are a lot of people out in these similar situations. It's not just the Featheringtons and the Bridgertons. You have the moms off to the side who are just gossiping. This is how Lady Whistledown gets in, right? All of these women are just gossiping. They're kind of on top on the mezzanine, looking down, spying on everyone. Anthony is actually like the best chaperone in a weird way because he's actually going around with the person he's chaperoning. Everyone else is just off gossiping somewhere. They talk about how these situations, the dances, the balls, the courting are part of how you secure a match. And so you have all these women and men trying to secure a match. And if you don't, they call it the spinster. 
I thought this was a weird comment. Like, what is a spinster? I have no idea what that means. I'm guessing like an endless cycle of you didn't find a match, so you become less desirable, so you can't find a match, so you become less desirable, and it just goes on and on. Um, but everyone's trying really, really hard in this ball to find a match. We get a little off scene of Penelope staring at Colin. So I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but I think it's pretty clear that at the very least, Penelope has a crush on... Uh, Colin is a good-looking guy. I'm not going to lie. I don't know how old Colin is. I'm going to guess he's like two, three years younger than me. I'm 25. I'm going to guess the actor that plays Colin in the show he's probably younger is like 22. He's a good-looking guy. I thought he was a good-looking guy. Anyways, it's no surprise to me that Penelope just via stares across the room is super into this guy. And I put another note here that I really like the soundtrack. I put, holy smokes, this soundtrack is incredible. I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but the ball here is really where we start getting into that soundtrack and where it really starts giving you permission to just enjoy the show. Daphne is having a great time at the ball to start. Everyone's looking at her, but the Lady Whistledown comments and the Queen comments have been a big boost for her, and she has so many options. These men start approaching her, and Anthony is kind of playing the role of Sherlock Holmes. Daphne doesn't know a lot about these people, so they'll come up and she'll be like, oh, I heard you won a race last week or whatever. And then Anthony will be like, his one and only race, you idiot, Daphne. He doesn't say it like that, but that's kind of the vibe I get from him. Maybe I'm being too harsh on Anthony, but whatever. And so multiple men come up. They have problems that Daphne doesn't know about, so Anthony's there to expose those problems. And then later, Daphne's clearly not happy with... Anthony's presence in these situations she would rather go and kind of find love herself and think she would do a better job which I completely agree with look take control of your life sister don't let Anthony tell you what to do and then we get Lord Burbrook Lord Burbrook is creepy and weird and is following her around and makes some strange comments about how he's always been into her and then Daphne says yeah, I was five years old, mate. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I'm just out on Burbrook, which you're meant to be. I don't think you're meant to like him at all. Again, I wish he had some sort of either redeeming quality or some sort of comparable to the Duke to make me feel like that there's a real chance that she ends up with him. But Burbrook shows up on the scene and sucks, and we hate him. And to get away from Burbrook, this is a big defining moment in the show, Daphne runs into the Duke, and I loved this scene introducing these two characters is a tough challenge because you just know as soon as the duke arrives on the scene you're like oh these two are getting together right you don't know how you don't know why but you know it's going to happen so have them running into each other and have them be in two totally different worlds as they're talking to each other or talking at each other is hilarious you have the duke who is like almost a or accusing daphne of accosting him and thinks it's a very um very what's the word i'm looking for here very she's being very rude she's being very inconsiderate and i had my own problem with the duke in this scene which we'll talk about in a second here and daphne is just saying anything like just talking at him to make sure that they they're having a conversation so that burbrook will go away and one of the things the duke says is that she accuses or he accuses daphne of being rude of accosting him and i thought like hey earlier in this episode we learned that your father just died. This is backed up by the fact that everyone who comes to talk to you gives you condolences for your father. So this must have just happened. So you've only been the Duke for a couple of days, maybe a week. I'm not sure. He says himself that he's only in London to take care 
of his his uh, late father's affairs. And so I thought it was weird that he just assumed that someone like Daphne, who doesn't know him, who doesn't know his father, would just by looking at him be able to know that he was the Duke of Hastings. I thought that was a bit uh, a bit weird. And Daphne, in a really funny way, can pick up once Anthony comes on the scene and introduces them as best friends, which I thought was very convenient, by the way. It's definitely very convenient that these two people who we all know uh, need to hook up at some point, need to get together, have a mutual interest, and it just happens to be her older brother. I did the, I did like that Daphne wasn't putting up with anyone's shit. Um, once she found out that the Duke was friends with Anthony, and she clearly knows about Anthony's like side hustle with the opera singer, she's like, oh, so you know my brother. That must be most civilized indeed, or whatever she says. And I thought that was perfect that Daphne is out here. It's not just Anthony. She's not going to take shit from everyone. And I really, really, really liked the intro of these two characters. Obviously, by the end of the episode, they're getting a lot closer. And she needs to look into his eyes and appear madly in love, which is a thing that I'm going to talk about. But this first introduction is hard to get right. And I think they absolutely nailed it. I think this was like a 10 out of 10 introduction, right? It's very funny. It's charming. It's interesting. The only part I don't like about it is it's a bit convenient that this guy just happens to be best friends with her older brother. So we'll see. I don't know if he's going to be supportive or not, right? But if I'm Anthony right now, I'm like, just marry this Duke guy. Like, he might not be perfect, but it's just like, he's way better than Burbrook or whatever. So I think it's a little bit convenient that Anthony and the Duke just happen to be BFFLs. Near the end of the ball, Anthony goes full stupid and just says something like, Daphne, if anybody knows how this works, it's your older brother. And which I wrote in my notes, dude, you're shagging the opera singer. What the fuck do you know about any of this? He just sucks. And and Mama Bridgerton even gets on board with this. He's like, look, I will take Daphne. I can chaperone Daphne. And Anthony's like, no, I'm the man of those. Herp derp, I'm show, ugh. And so he takes takes Daphne home and says that she can't dance with anyone because you want people to be... He's playing hard to get with Daphne. And you want people to be interested. You want them longing for more. If she dances right now, it's not going to go well. Which is absolutely ridiculous. Mama Bridgerton clearly knows what she's talking about. And Anthony's clearly an idiot. But... That gets borne out in the next scene where it's collar time. So I don't want to talk about the collar scenes too much. This podcast is already going a little bit long. But the my main takeaway from the, the situation of being called on. You know, these men are coming to the house of the women that they were enamored with at the ball the evening before. And they're going to have a chat about life, about love, about whatever, whatever, whatever. Probably the size of the dowry. And it is wild. It is absolutely wild that they do this in front of everybody else. I understand the chaperone thing. I understand if someone comes to call on Daphne or on one of the Featheringtons or on Marina, that one of the adults has to stay in the room to to chaperone the conversation. But the fact that when people come calling on Marina, they do this in front of other people... When Lord Burbrook, who I really wish would just go away, and I do feel terribly for Daphne that after Anthony accosts one of the callers for being in his seat, that um, that only Lord Burbrook shows up after this. It's weird to me that they do this in front of other people, right? I wrote down it's like a job interview. Like, why on earth would you do this? Like, why would you do that? Why, 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 why? Just like 
you, the person you're talking to, and one chaperone is enough. You don't need all these other people. And Elohim has this amazing moment, incredible moment, where as soon as Lord Burbrook shows up, she's like, oh, I'm fucking staying for this. I am not leaving this room. I am witnessing this whole thing because this is going to be hilarious. It is her... It is like a dream for Eloise that Daphne's gone through this whole thing. She's gone. She's been told by the queen how amazing she is. But she's been told by Lady Whistledown how beautiful the diamond of the first water. And it's Lord Burbrook who shows up. Like, to Eloise, this must be perfect. Also, Lady Whistledown and the queen, not as hot on Daphne anymore. Right? Went to the first... It doesn't take long. This is what I was saying earlier. It's very fun to me that Lady Whistledown can just tank your whole value and reputation after one ball by saying anything she wants. Very, 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 very cool. Later, we learn a little bit more about the Duke. Lady Danbury has invited the Bridgersons up to her box. They are going to watch some sort of opera. And guess who is singing at the opera? The the side uh, person that... I need to learn her name. I feel really bad. I will learn her name. I'm not sure if we got it in this episode. I will have her name for the next episode if she comes back. But we have this person that Anthony was shagging up against the tree with. And, and she's the one singing. And there's this funny moment with the queen where Lady Bridgerton is like, Hey, you must remember my daughter, the most beautiful diamond of the first water. And the queen sasses the shit out of her and says something like... Oh, yes, I remember her. She left a great impression, however fleeting it may have been, and then just turns around, which is so sick. But her and Lady Danbury in the middle of the show get to concocting this plan. Lady Danbury and Mama Bridgerton both know that these two need to hook up. And I was immediately glad that Anthony is not the one starting this, because earlier I remember being very upset that it was just very convenient. And I'm still not convinced that Anthony doesn't get involved in this but it's still very convenient but at least it's lady danbury and mama bridgerton two people who we like are concocting this plan to get daphne and the duke to to um like each other and this is my favorite part of convenience lady danbury is like oh my god the duke loves gooseberry pie you should try making the gooseberry pie and says it like in such a way that you can't miss it like that is the key to his heart is this gooseberry pie and then of course of course, by the grace of God and all that is holy, the Bridgerton Cook. It's the most famous dish. The thing they are best at making is the fucking gooseberry pie. How convenient is that? So we get this family dinner, and the best part about this family dinner isn't actually the dinner. It's at the point where the Duke says, yes, Lady Danbury accepted this invitation on my behalf. However, could I refuse? And I thought, there was no invitation. This is whole, all Lady Danbury's idea. So I loved Lady Danbury and Lady Bridgerton. Cooking this whole thing up is fantastic. I like how the Duke kind of knows, but kind of doesn't know about it. And so Daphne and the Duke are seated right next to each other. And this is just such a nice family dinner. They're trying to figure out who Lady Whistledown is. They're guessing all kinds of people. It can't be Lady Danbury for this reason. It can't be... Uh, Miss Featherington, <laughs> that was very funny too. And they're like, is it Lady Featherington? And they're like, no. And the Duke seems to be genuinely enjoying himself. And this is a great way for us to start understanding that the Duke either can't have kids or doesn't want to have kids for some reason. We're not really sure yet. I have no idea. 
But you can tell that this kind of life, he's at least open to it. You know, he seems to be having a lot of fun. Anthony is on it. Anthony sees those two sitting together and knows that this was some cooked up plan. It's really on the nose and Anthony has picked up on it, which is great. But this whole family dinner is very, very funny. And we get a little bit of character work with some of the younger Bridgertons as well. I still don't know her name, the younger one. We get Gregory. I don't know the other younger sibling name who must be older than Gregory because of the alphabet, but whatever. I thought the family dinner scene was great, very funny, and the gooseberry pie, as soon as that arrives, the Duke is all in on the gooseberry pie. So what a play from Lady Danbury. Worked out absolutely perfectly. Next we have Lady Bridgerton going up to Anthony and almost confronting him, pretty much saying, look, I know that you rent an apartment on the other side of town, you're sleeping with the opera singer lady, Right? Like, are you going to be the man of the family or not? And so she's laying the law down. She's clearly better than this. She clearly is not happy with Anthony's performance uh, as the man of the house. I do like, though, that Anthony's, like, at least renting an apartment for this lady. Like, at least he's doing the bare minimum to not be a complete asshat. So that's cool. I put in capital letters, she is so right. Go Mama Bear. She calls out Anthony. Are you just going to wait for your brothers to have kids? Like, you suck, dude. And so I appreciated that. Anthony, though. Anthony, though. Fuck this guy. He takes this conversation far too literally. Goes and immediately does a complete 180 on the opera singer girl. Who earlier, earlier was like, I always protect you. I said said it would take half a season when I watched that for him to turn around on this took this episode he immediately goes and he's like nope we can't do this anymore see ya bye bye and i put keep your word you dickhead so just you have the money just keep your word right break up with her you can't be seen with her socially whatever but i think he owes her some kind of financial recompense some kind of care that she's not or that he's not giving her and i just he's such a tool i just don't understand I get why he's not able to see her anymore. I don't get why he has to be so mean about it after earlier in this episode trying to be so nice. He clearly actually cares for her at least a little bit. So the way he goes about this is super, super strange. And the last scene, the last thing we get is the third ball, the final ball of the episode. And Anthony comes in hot. There's a whole bunch that happens here. One of my favorite parts of the ball is the light situation. You know, um, they say that this is the this is the coolest thing that's going to happen tonight. And someone lights almost like a firework onto these lights and they sprinkle up overhead. And it was beautifully well done. Again, everything is so beautiful and vibrant. And it really helps you sink into the world Colin is out here and he's asking for Marina and he's asking Penelope for Marina and that is pissing Penelope off. So it's clear there's a little triangle forming here. Colin likes Marina. Penelope likes Colin. And so we'll see where this goes, right? But um, this other lady, lady, is it Lady Cowper maybe? I feel like we get her name. I think it's Cowper. I have the word Cowper written down in my notes somewhere. So this other lady is nearby and she like pretends to not see Penelope. She's just being a dink as well. And she chucks her drink on Penelope and then Colin's like, whoa, hold up. I actually need to escort uh, Miss Penelope onto the floor. So Colin is a fucking hero in this episode. Colin is my favorite character coming. He's just such a nice and kind person. Right, he's who I who he's who I would hope to be 
in this show. He's just out there. He's playing the game. He's not trying to change too much of the situation. But within the world he's in, he's trying to be a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing. And I really, it's a small moment with a small character that we don't really care about yet, but it really stood out to me as just this really nice and kind thing to do. Cause a lot of people are not being kind in this show and to have someone just show up and be um, just gentlemanly and chivalrous in a way and nice and kind and just have basic respect for another person who deserves it. Penelope's lovely. Penelope's a very, very fun person who just has her opinions on the world who's trying to read books who doesn't really want to be in on this social season and so this moment was small but it really stood out to me i took the most notes about it almost after almost everything um in the ball next up we have the whole anthony situation though and anthony again taking his conversation his beat down from mama bridgerton way too seriously and he comes up to daphne and he goes look i've looked into it again how are you sherlock Right, where did you go to look into it between last night and tonight? Like, where have you gone to look into the, all of the many things that Lord Burbrook would have uh, done throughout his life? So Anthony is just terrible. He's clearly not looked into this at all. I don't even know how you would do that. Whatever. But he says something to the effect of, like, look, I've looked in, in quotation marks, to Lord Burbrook. He has no debts. He's a good guy. He can make lots of babies. He's just listing things. He's a good shot. He's a good shot. Like, shut the, these people have so much money. They're not out shooting their own meat. Like, Anthony, shut the fuck up. You're not making any sense. But, uh, Daphne, be, be glad. This is what he says. Be glad that it is done. Like, I wanted to punch Anthony in the face, a la Daphne on Lord Burbrook, through my computer screen. This whole situation is ridiculous. So, Anthony doing a terrible job, and Daphne will not hear of it, which is a fun line because it's a line of dialogue that would only happen in this, like, Regency era, but she will not hear of it, and I put in all capital letters, good for her. I am glad that she is standing up for herself in this situation and not letting Anthony bully her around. Marina, while this, we have a smash cut of Marina back at the Featherington house, and Marina is pregnant, which explains the weird scene earlier where she's getting mad at her sheets. <laughs> I deleted it from my notes after it got explained, but I, earlier she's just, <laughs> she's like throwing down her sheets in frustration, and I was like, I have no idea why she's mad at her sheets, and I was so confused, but it gets explained. Marina is pregnant, and Lady Featherington is pissed and marina goes on this um tangent about how she could never understand and she has no idea which you know what again good for you marina i'm for anyone standing up for themselves in this show that was fun i don't really like marina's character too much i don't know enough about her but i liked this moment and then mama featherington freaking slaps her in the face slaps her in clean in the face the last episode is the last half of this episode is really heavy on fists and hands making contact with people's faces. Um, but that was unnecessary. I think probably pretty common for the time. I don't know if I'm going to hold that against Lady Featherington for too long. But as of right now, dick move, Lady Featherington. There's no reason to slap her in the face. That was absolutely ridiculous. And then to end off the episode, you have the scene. The scene. The Duke and Daphne getting together. It all starts when Daphne goes for a walkabout into the garden, right, or into the garden area, and Lord Burbrook 
follows her and she's like oh fuck she's trying to get away from this whole thing and he's following her and he's saying things like oh my god we are to wed so soon are we already dropping the formalities and you're just like shut up we hate you like go away and so daphne is saying how she's never gonna marry him and burbrook takes offense to this and so he grabs her and then the duke arrives on the scene the duke is around the corner obviously trying to escape from all the moms and the daughters and all of these uh situations he does not want to be in and i in my notes i put oh my god the duke's gonna save her i hate this but then the duke doesn't save her daphne stands up for herself and like mike tyson punches this guy clean in the face and can we talk about this for a second daphne bridgerton a person with no formal fight training, I'm assuming, who is very beautiful, but doesn't look like someone who could throw a lot of weight behind a punch, knocks this guy clean out. Probably helps that he's drunk, but still. What a punch from Daphne. I was so hyped, and I was glad that it was her that saved herself in this situation. It wasn't the Duke... Daphne took the situation into her own hands and she took agency and rescued herself from the situation and didn't need no man to come in and help her. And I really enjoyed that because then when the Duke arrives, the Duke gets all the credit for being the good guy here, which is what you need. You need the Duke to be a good guy, especially better than Lord Burbrook. But I want Daphne to have agency, right? If we're going to watch the show and it's just going to be another show about all the men doing all the stuff where all the women can't and the women aren't going to take agency, it's just going to be very boring and rude and weird. And I love that Daphne in this moment takes that situation upon herself to punch this guy square in the face. And you know what? Well done, Daphne. The Duke explains that he is only there um also he says a very funny comment sorry um I, I like interrupting myself it's one of the fun things you get to do when you talk to yourself in a room for an hour is you get to interrupt yourself um, i like when he says like as far as proposals go that one was the least romantic i've ever seen or something like that and it was a very very funny quip the acting work of the duke in this episode is very very well done and he explains he's there to avoid the mothers and the daughters and all these people trying to marry him or marry someone off to him or whatever. And then he, it's his idea, he concocts this plan with Daphne, who's also needing to appear in a relationship with someone else to avoid Lord Burbrook, that they're going to... And this part is a bit on the nose for me. Like, the pretending to be in love thing, like, obviously, you're like, okay, so this is how it happens. But it is very cute in the moment. They're going to pretend to be in love. And then they go back to the the dance and the way this scene is edited it's cut back and forth it's really really well done i really enjoyed the way this scene was edited uh the plot is a bit on the lows i don't know if i'm sold on this pretending to be in love thing i think it's a little bit cheesy for me but the way they do it is fun enough that i'll get on board with it and they go back and it's cut very cool and he's like you have to look into my eyes. We have to be madly in love. And everyone's looking at them. And it seems to be working. And I thought this was a really, really cool way to end the episode. Because Lady Whistledown comes in hot at the very end. Alright, comes in hot at the very end. And seems to be in on the Duke and Daphne, which is great. I don't know who Lady Whistledown is. Anthony looks mad too at the end. Um, I don't know who Lady Whistledown is. I do want to talk a little bit about it at the end of this episode here. I think it would be the best. So far, I'm super in on Lady Whistledown, either being Lady Danbury. You know, in this episode, she's wheeling and dealing. She is out there 
right? Like setting up the Duke, setting up Daphne with Whistledown really digging the Duke and Daphne. You get the sense that this is somebody, right? It's obviously somebody who's like present, someone who's there to get all the intel because no one knows who she is. So no one could send her intel. She needs to be there to get the intel on her own, I think. And so I think Lady Danbury is suspect number one for me. She's out there. She's wheeling and dealing, but doesn't seem to care as much about Lady Whistledown, or at least if she does, she's trying to hide it a little more. I think Lady Danbury might be a good option. I think it would be the funniest, though. Out of all the people we met this episode, I think it would be so, so incredibly funny if it was Papa Featherington. Just this guy who's aloof, who doesn't look like he cares, but is secretly in the back room just collecting all the gossip and writing all his pamphlets. So those are my two guesses for who Lady Whistledown might be. As we end this episode... I, I really enjoyed this. There's a lot of exposition you got to get through. Most of the episode worked really well for me. I like where the story's going. I'm excited to see what's going to happen next. I predict that the Colin and Marina thing's going to blow up a little bit because Penelope will be angry at it. I predict that this Daphne and the Duke thing is at some point going to break down a little bit because you just need it to happen. You need the conflict, right? So Daphne's with the Duke right now. I reckon that's going to break down a little bit at some point. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but there's enough meat here for me to be really excited. But at the end of this episode, I wasn't like spam clicking on to the next one. Anyways, I would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. If you have any thoughts on this episode, we can chat about them next podcast. You can send an email to letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com and let you let me know what you thought about the podcast. Let me know what you thought about this episode of Bridgerton. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and we will see you in a couple of days for Bridgerton Season 1, Episode 2. Thank you so much for watching and we will see you next time.